truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his wife, his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must, me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Our second reading today is from Epistles. I'm sorry. Our, our epistle reading today is from Philippians 2, 1 through 11. It's on page 1827 in your pew Bible. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human kindness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and being obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God, God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the God and the Father. Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from the book of Genesis. Clear back at the beginning of your Bibles, chapter 22, verses 1 through 19. And you can find this on page 31 and 32 of the Pew Bible. Some time later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am. He replied, then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. 
Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. This is the word of God for the people of God. Genesis 22 is a strange and difficult text to deal with. It is often referred to academically as the binding, or in Hebrew, Haggadah because the climax of the story is that point where Abraham gets to the top of the mountain, and in order to continue in his submission to God's instructions, he must bind up his only son, his beloved son, the one who he loves. This beloved boy, he has waited years into his old age for. Surely, he assumed God would have provided by now would have stopped it before it got that far. This is, unfortunately, a passage that really loses much of its beauty and drama in English, much of the poetry and the repetitive phrases that are used in the Hebrew. And this makes it an easy passage to want to gloss over or skim through because it's uncomfortable and it seems very terse and unpoetic in the English But on deeper investigation, it is rich and full of beautiful storytelling. And it is a turning point in Abraham's life and in scripture itself. Now, it's easy to see this story as having just the two characters in it, God and Abraham. God tests Abraham, Abraham passes. So when we insert ourselves into the story, we put ourselves in the place of being tested by God directly by being asked to give up something we love. And then we remember that if we are willing to give up this thing, God will provide. This is certainly something that the narrator of the passage wants us to take home from it. But have we forgotten the third person in this story, the other submitter in this story? Have you ever entered this story from Isaac's point of view? At least Abraham knew what was going on. Abraham was submitting to God. Isaac was submitting to his father, who seems to have lost his mind. The text doesn't say how old Isaac was in this narrative, but we can assume that he was old enough he'd survived the most dangerous part of childhood at those times, those first 
five years when many children would have died from health issues or other illnesses. He's old enough, though, to make some observations along their trip, but not so old that when they get to the top, he's too big to bind up as a sacrifice. Now, based on the tone of their conversation, I just assume he's around eight years old because I've recently been for a long walk up a mountain with an eight-year-old boy, and he didn't stop talking the entire time. Where are we going, Dad? God knows it's fine. But when are we going to get there, Dad? When God says we're there, Isaac. Dad, we've got all this stuff for a sacrifice, but where's the sheep? God's got it, Isaac. Just keep walking. And maybe I'm personalizing the story a little bit too much, but I can just imagine Abraham reminding himself the whole way up the mountain that his son is a miracle who he loves. But in spite of Isaac's questions and his suspicion that there is something not quite normal about this trek, he keeps following his dad up the mountain and never once asks to go back down or to go home. He trusts that his father is submitting to God, the ultimate authority, and so he submits to Abraham. Child sacrifice was not uncommon in that part of the world during Abraham's time. All around Abraham and his people, there were cultures in which children were perhaps not frequently sacrificed, but it was not unheard of either. But Abraham's God was different. At least he thought so until he was asked to climb up a mountain and sacrifice his only son he'd prayed so hard for and had been miraculously granted in his old age. We lose part of the drama of this story when we miss the fact that in his submission to God, Abraham must have felt a bit of, wow, I thought my God was different than those other false gods around me. How strange it must have felt that God was asking him to do something that all the pagans around him seemed to be doing routinely. But then at the top, just as he raises his arm to bring the cleaver down on his precious Beloved son, God stops him. Abraham, shouts the angel. Relieved and wiping away nervous sweat, Abraham shouts back, Here I am. Don't lay a finger on that boy. God provided, but God did not provide in the time or the place that Abraham thought he would. God did not provide without an awful lot of sweating and worrying on Abraham's part. God did not provide in the way that Abraham suspected, and yet Abraham submitted to God right up to the very end. Now, when we think about submission in this passage and how we have examples of submitting to God and to another person as well, it is important that we remember to be cautious that submission is often a misdefined concept in our world. As one who has personally suffered at the hands of someone misdefining submission and who spends a great deal of time teaching and counseling those who have been abused by misuse of the word submission, I feel it's important to make sure that when we are talking about submission, we define it as being a recognition of legitimate authority with God as the ultimate authority. God's authority is the ultimate authority to which we must submit. 
Misuse of authority and misdefinition of submission is why we have women and children abused in their own homes. It's why we have entire races of people still struggling to recover from slavery or being moved into internment camps or reservations. It's why emotionally exhausting and abusive workplaces are so common. So let me be clear. Biblical submission does not mean God has a hierarchy of people who are better or more in charge than other people inherently. It also means that when we find ourselves under the authority of a boss or a parent or ruling elders or government leaders, we are called to submit to them humbly as Isaac did, trusting that they, in turn, will not misuse their authority, that they are also in submission to God, that they are in turn called to treat that authority with great respect and to handle it compassionately and in submission to the ultimate authority, God. When that authority is not used compassionately and in total submission to God, it is false authority. It's simply broken earthly power and nothing more. True authority and the heavenly right to lead in any situation come from humility and submission to God. So with that definition in mind, we return to some important questions. Are we ourselves willing to be bound as Isaac was? Are we willing to enter into something that we don't understand because that's where God and our community are leading us? Where in our lives are we each failing to participate in the discipline of submission? You see, classifying submission as a spiritual discipline makes so much more sense than classifying it as a trait or a state of mind that a person can achieve or even as a person's place in society. Because like the other spiritual disciplines we've talked about this summer, meditation, prayer, fasting, study, simplicity, and solitude, and the ones we still have to explore this month and next, service, confession, worship, guidance, and celebration, it is ultimately about freedom. It's about releasing distractions and offering God the ultimate say. And sometimes that means letting go of getting our own way. As Foster puts it, frankly, most things in life are not nearly as important as we think they are. Our lives will not come to an end if this or that does not happen. In submission, we are at last free to value other people. Their dreams and plans become important to us. In other words, most of the time when we feel like we have to fight for something on principle, it's simply our own ego getting in the way of submitting to the hopes and dreams of others. It means that when we live in community, we are all going to have to let things go from time to time because not everyone can have their way all the time. It means that when we pray, we pray that God's will would be done and that we might have a heart submissive to that will. Not that God would please do these things on the list, just how we're asking them to happen. For those of us who like to have our own way, this is a very difficult discipline to practice. But it is also not about giving up who we are. And perhaps that's where the hardest trap lies, when we feel like we have to give up who we are. We don't. We don't lose our identity in this. 
In fact, perhaps this is where we can most gain our identity in Christ. The apple seed that becomes an apple tree is no less apple. It gives itself up. It is buried in the ground unseen, where it then explodes and grows into something beautiful and new and even more apple than the seed was before. That's where our gospel passage leaves us with great hope this morning. When we refuse to submit to God and to the godly people around us, we are insisting that we must remain a seed because we are a seed. But unless we allow ourselves to be planted, to explode open and become something entirely different, but still entirely the same, we'll always be just a hard, bitter little seed. But when we die to ourselves, allow God to plant us in the ground, blow us open, and grow into something wholly different and wholly the same, we produce great fruit. Amen.